0: The mob that stormed the Capitol carried Confederate flags and white supremacist banners, wore clothing with racist language and neo-Nazi symbols, and hung a noose on a makeshift gallows. So the NAACP looked back in history, 150 years ago, to when the Ku Klux Klan was terrorizing blacks in the South. And this week, the NAACP filed a suit against former President Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, the Proud Boys, and the Oath Keepers for conspiring to incite the January 6th Capitol riot in violation of the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act enacted to combat the KKK. The suit was filed on behalf of Democratic Representative Benny Thompson of Mississippi, who spoke to MSNBC.
1: That Ku Klux Klan uh, law was basically put on the books to protect Southerners and other people from the Klan who didn't want this great country of ours to survive. But thank goodness it did. And now here we come full circle uh, with this Klan-like activity.
0: Joining me is Harold Krant, a professor at the Chicago-Kent College of Law. Hal, tell us about the history of this law.
1: The Ku Klux Klan Act were passed in the wake of the reconstruction as a means of trying to ensure the newly freed slaves their ability to enjoy equal protection rights, and particularly the right to vote. Individuals were being intimidated from voting, and indeed federal officials were being intimidated from trying to ensure the vote to the newly freed slaves. So Congress stepped in to impose both criminal penalties on those who interfere with the right to vote, as well as a civil right of action.
0: So now this has been used rarely, so rarely litigated. Are there open questions about it?
1: They're very open questions. I mean, to look at it historically, the discipline of the act was the criminal penalties. And the criminal penalties were used thousands of times by the grant administration in order to break the back of the KKK and was remarkably successful in doing so. But the civil aspects of the statutes lay dormant for 100 years until they were used very successfully in the 1980s when the Klan was accused of trying to disrupt an individual's ability to vote. So the key question is, can a public official use it as a civil means to get remedies for injuries he sustained and that's the claim by representative Thompson to my knowledge has never been used by a public official certainly the actions are prohibited by the statute but the question is whether that's merely left over from a criminal penalty or whether it gives a right to a public official to sue for the injuries that he or she received
0: and what about the hurdle of a president being immune from civil lawsuits for acts in his official capacity
1: the Supreme Court in Nixon v. Fitzgerald held that the president is absolutely immune from civil suits for any actions during his administration. So this lawsuit will have to prove that Trump was acting not in his official capacity, but in his personal capacity when he allegedly conspired in the events of January 6th.
0: The plaintiffs anticipated that hurdle and alleged that Trump acted beyond the outer perimeter of his official duties and therefore is susceptible to suit in his personal capacity.
1: It's going to be extremely difficult for the lawsuit to prevail against President Trump on that ground. A very similar argument was made in Fitzgerald versus Nixon itself. The allegation there was that Nixon had Fitzgerald fired. He was a management analyst for the Air Force. And he had reported on cost overruns, which embarrassed the administration. He was fired. He then sued Nixon after Nixon's term in office was over. And as in this case, he said, look, you took personal vendetta against me. And by firing me, you acted outside your official responsibilities. I should be able to sue you. And the Supreme Court brushed that aside and said, if we took any kind of allegations of unlawful behavior against the president, his official immunity would be chipped away too extensively. And so I think they'll be very demanding in terms of the showing required to remove a president's absolute immunity from civil suit.
0: In the defamation lawsuit by a New York advice columnist, E. Jean Carroll, against Trump, the judge said that this wasn't part of his official duty so the lawsuit could go on. Do you think that that was an incorrect decision then?
1: I think that is a tough decision, and I think it may not hold up on appeal, particularly in that lawsuit. The response was at an official, if I recall correctly, at an official press conference, and he was responding to questions about the lawsuit and the situation. So it would be difficult, I think, to show that when you're responding to a question at a White House press conference that you're not acting within the outer perimeter Of of your job. Now, the Supreme Court made up these rules in terms of absolute immunity. So it is theoretically possible that the Supreme Court will reconsider the scope of Fitzgerald case and decide to limit the kinds of immunities that a president may enjoy. But I'm skeptical. And I think that both of these lawsuits will have a hard time against President Trump himself. Now, President Trump is not immune from criminal conduct.
0: Speaking of tough evidentiary burdens, this lawsuit alleges a conspiracy that Trump and Giuliani and the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers acted in concert to incite and then carry out the Capitol insurrection. So
1: not only are there issues about who can be sued and who can sue under the Ku Klux Klan Act, but the very conspiracy itself will be difficult to prove. To show that there was an active agreement amongst the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, Giuliani, and Trump somewhat defies, I think, credibility. But I think one of the points here in the lawsuit, besides the symbolism of using the Ku Klux Klan Act, is to put the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers on the defensive. They will have to spend money. And if this case continues, they'll be subject to depositions and discovery. And so a great deal of information may be uncovered, even if ultimately they'll prove too difficult to show a conspiracy.
0: So there's a political aspect to this lawsuit, as well as illegal. There's a very important
1: political aspect, right? We have the symbolism of using the act. We have the threat of financial harm imposed upon the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys who are probably not flush with cash. Um, Same thing is true with the lawsuit. There'll be many lawsuits against Giuliani, and how much money does, does he have? And at the same time, we may find out that there were discussions, and maybe there was a conspiracy, right? We don't know, um, And but the idea of discovery is to get at phone calls, emails, uh, Facebook messages that may suggest that there was more coordination than we've been led to believe. I haven't scoured the books, but I would think that this is really, possibly it's to get into federal court, but possibly the use of the Ku Klux Klan statute is really symbolic, and that if Congressman Thompson had simply sued for tort injuries that he received, it would not be the same kind of press, not be the same kind of overarching inquiry into what happened that day. So I think this raises the stakes, it raises the visibility of the lawsuit as opposed to a personal injury suit.
0: I should say the leader of the Proud Boys has said that there was no plan to go to the Capitol, that though there were Proud Boys there, there was no actual plan to go to the Capitol. So Trump, so when his his spokesman responded, did not mention the immunity from civil suit. Instead, he said that Trump did not incite or conspire to incite any violence at the Capitol. It seems odd that they didn't mention immunity from lawsuits.
1: Well, I read that, and and my take on it is simply that he wants to repeat what the defense was before the Senate in the impeachment trial, that he was exercising his First Amendment rights, was proud of the support he was receiving from the crowd in front of the White House, and in no way incited any kind of violence. Um, Obviously, when it comes down to responding to this lawsuit, I have a strong suspicion that he will rely upon presidential
2: immunity as well.
0: An advantage of this suit that you don't have in a criminal case is that there's a lower burden for the plaintiffs. So explain the burden in a civil suit.
1: In in a civil suit, the burden is only a little over 50% for the plaintiff to uh, prevail, unlike in a criminal suit when the state has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the individual committed the covered offense. And so it may be that in a close case, and I would think that the Georgia case is even more uh, difficult for Trump than the insurrection case, but then in a close case, uh, Trump may lose in a civil case, even if he would prevail in a criminal case.
0: I was wondering if there are any jurisdictional problems.
1: I don't. Think so? I mean, I think the only, the, the only, I mean, look, I, I don't know, but I just find it odd that the statute that criminalizes interference with government officials allows the government officials to sue for their individual damages. It just seems that that was intended for a criminal prohibition, as opposed to for giving the government official a right to sue for personal damages. But maybe it is. I mean, that's going to be a very difficult historical argument. But I think the other kinds of jurisdictional issues should be relatively clear. There were proud Boys there. There were the oath keepers both in the, um, in, in DC. And there's no question that at least some of them wanted to interfere with the official tabulation of the, of the votes. And that does lie at the heart of the civil rights statute, which are known as the Ku Klux Klan Act.
0: And so it seems, as you referred to, a big point of this lawsuit may be to get more information. You know, the House managers stopped short of having any witnesses or subpoenaing any documents. So this might allow some discovery into what really happened.
1: Absolutely. Even if President Trump is removed from this case, because of immunity, the case can continue. And with depositions, With discovery, subpoenas, um, the plaintiffs may find out a great deal more about who knew what, who planned to do what on January 6th.
0: And it seems like the House managers have basically laid out the case for them. They can use all the different video and audio and information that the House managers presented.
1: Right. There's a great deal of video and audio information that are already in the public Uh, consciousness and public record because we saw it during the impeachment trial. But we have not seen, again, in terms of emails, we haven't seen all the Facebook messages, we haven't seen, um, uh, we haven't had depositions of some of the leaders of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, and that information may supplement the record and give us a different picture of what really happened on January 6th.
0: Some civil attorneys have been using the KKK statute in recent years for defending people who have been injured by hate groups, at least in the lawsuit phase. So what does it say that basically this statute that's been forgotten for so many years that it's having to be used again?
1: There are different avenues that individuals can use who are injured in the riots at the Capitol on January 6th. Um, They don't have to just rely upon the KKK statute. There can be uh, assault and other kinds of claims for people who were um, injured. Uh, This is a powerful statute because it has attorney's fees and other costs can be uh, be associated with it to be recovered. Um, But I think it's, again, mostly being used because it gives a federal right of action as opposed to a state action that would otherwise be required for just a, a tort injury, for instance, that happened due to the rioters and the mayhem they caused.
0: Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Hal. That's Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago-Kent College of Law. Former President Donald Trump faces a new legal threat from a prosecutor who was just sworn into office last month. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis sent a letter to top Georgia state officials informing them that her office is investigating whether illegal attempts were made to influence the state's 2020 elections. This includes Trump's now infamous January 2nd call to Georgia's Secretary of State asking him to change the state's certified results of the presidential election.
1: So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find... uh, 11,780 votes which is one more that we have. You know what they did and you're not reporting it. That's a you know that's a criminal that's a criminal offense. And and you know you can't let that happen. That's that's a big risk to you and to Ryan.
0: Joining me is Clark Cunningham, a law professor at Georgia State University. Clark in her letter Willis says she's focused on a wide range of charges including solicitation of election fraud, false statements, conspiracy, and racketeering. How would you characterize her investigation?
2: I would say it's a sweeping investigation at this stage. And what I've seen, she's looking at more charges than the people involved in the phone call. What I understand is she's looking at Trump's phone call to Governor Kemp, attempting to interfere with the election through that phone call. She's looking at the phone call that Trump made to the attorney general, Chris Carr, attempting to interfere with him defending the state of Georgia against a completely spurious lawsuit that the state of Texas filed in the Supreme Court. She's looking at this phone call to the Secretary of State, but I imagine she's also looking at other attempts that Trump made to pressure or intimidate. Secretary of State Rassenberger, for example, he held a press conference on Thanksgiving and said that the Secretary of State was an enemy of the people. I believe she's looking at a phone call that Trump made directly to an official of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation who was conducting an election audit. And I believe she's also, and this is why she has sent a letter to the lieutenant governor, because the lieutenant governor is the presiding officer of the Georgia Senate. And she's looking at statements that Giuliani made on behalf of Trump to the Georgia legislature, particularly to the Senate, which have been described as false and fraudulent statements.
0: One charge mentioned is criminal solicitation to commit election fraud. Describe what's required there and how Trump's phone call might fit in.
2: You know, frankly, that looks like an open and shut case to me. We have the transcript. We have the actual recording of the phone call. Trump has admitted that it's genuine. So the facts are very clear. And so the crime is that a person commits the offense when, with intent that another person engage in conduct constituting a felony under this article, he or she solicits, requests, commands, importunes, or otherwise attempts to cause the other person to engage in such conduct. So the question is, during that phone call was Trump trying, soliciting, requesting, commanding, importuning, or otherwise attempting to cause the Secretary of State and his staff to engage in election fraud. And then there are lots of things that constitute election fraud, but altering certified vote results would clearly be one of them.
0: Let's discuss possible racketeering charges. In her most famous case, Willis used Georgia's RICO law to prosecute teachers and officials in a cheating scandal in the Atlanta public school system, a place where you don't usually expect racketeering charges.
2: Yes, and I was living in Atlanta at the time, and she secured a lot of convictions under that theory that there was a criminal enterprise to bribe teachers or threaten teachers to change grades. So she's very familiar with the Georgia racketeering statute. She secured a lot of convictions. It was controversial. Some people thought that the prosecution was overzealous, but that has nothing to do with, as far as I know, whether or not racketeering was appropriate.
0: How would Georgia's racketeering law fit in with this case?
2: So the key to to the statute is, are the definition sections, because um, the elements of a racketeering prosecution is that there has to be an enterprise. And an enterprise can be pretty much anything that um, is engaged. It can be a person, a partnership, a trust, a union. Certainly the Trump campaign is an enterprise that engages in at least two acts of what's called racketeering activity. And if the enterprise engages in at least two acts of racketeering activity within the time frame, then you have a racketeering case. So they need at least two events, uh, not just one. And then the definition of racketeering activity includes committing or attempt to commit a violation of a number of Georgia statutes. And the one that I assume that she's particularly interested in is the false statement statute that I referred to a moment ago. Um, that it's a felony uh, for a person knowingly and willfully to make a false, fictitious, or fraudulent statement uh, within the jurisdiction of any department or agency of state government. So that would apply to any false statement that Trump or anybody who would be, in effect, part of his campaign, that enterprise, made to the governor, the the attorney general. Lindsey Graham, in effect, could be part of that enterprise. So it could include any 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 of the statements that were made by them to achieve the purpose of the of the of the enterprise and the purpose of the enterprise was to keep Donald Trump in office. Without a doubt.
0: A possible defense of Trump's could be I didn't have the intent to commit a crime here. He could say, I didn't want the records to be falsified, I wanted them to be corrected.
2: Well, he could say whatever he wants to say, but I've read through this transcript a number of times. His intent is crystal clear, and his intent is to solicit the Secretary of State to change the certified election results by enough votes so the margin of victory shifts to him. And he says that over and over and over again in that meeting, that that's what he wants to achieve. Um, And there's no good defense for that statement that he makes over and over and over again. First of all, of course, the president of the United States should not be getting on the phone with a state election official anyway, right? But if he got on the phone with the secretary of state and said, I understand you did an audit of signature matching on absentee ballots in Cobb County, I'm calling to ask you to also do that in Fulton County, all right, that would be something different. And, of course, the president would have to live with whatever the result of that audit was just like a recount. Nothing wrong with asking for a recount, but you can't ask for a recount and say, recount until you get 11,800 votes from me and then stop the recount. Um, And so that was was the entire strategy of this phone call, and I've looked at it now. Again, he's simply dealing with it, apparently the way he deals with almost everything, um, as a kind of transactional negotiation, right? Uh, So he starts off with, false and inflated statements that he had hundreds of thousands, he won by hundreds of thousands of votes, and he makes a number of very factual statements, right? Um, he, you know, he says um, there were 4,502 voters who weren't on the voter registration roll. There were 18,325 voters where their address was a vacant house. There were 904 voters who only had a post office box. Um, there were 4,925 uh, ballots from out-of-state voters. There were 2,326 ballots absentee ballots sent to Baker Those are very very precise numbers. So those are factual statements, and if they're false, then there's a statute that says that it is a crime to willingly knowingly make a false statement. Um, to um, the government agency. Now, it would probably, it would be for the jury uh, to determine whether he knew that those statements were false. Uh, but factually, I don't think there's any question but but they're false. And he wasn't saying, in my opinion, you know, the election was not handled well. He's making very, very specific factual statements. And then he says, add all these facts up, add all these different facts, which I assert to be true, and you've got a lot more than 11,800 votes that should have been cast for me. And then it's perfectly clear, he says, okay, now that I've made the case that actually, factually, there there are, in his view, hundreds of thousands of votes for him, then he basically says, but let's make a deal, right? Um, okay? And he says that over and over again. Um, so... He begins, here's the, the, the line, that's the clearest solicitation. Um, and it's interesting how he, you know, he, he blends threats with this. So he says, we have won this election in Georgia based on all of this, and there's nothing wrong with saying that, Brad. He's referring to the Secretary of State. You know, I mean, having the correct, and then he stops, and he makes a threat. The people of Georgia are angry, and these numbers are going to be repeated on Monday night. That's when he was coming in for a big rally along with others that we're going to have by that time, which are much more substantial even. And the people of Georgia are angry. The people of the country are angry. So makes the threat. And then here's the solicitation for fraud. And there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, um, that you recalculate. Okay? And then he says, even if you cut them in half, cut them in half, and cut them in half again, it's more votes than we need. So, and then over and over again, he says, take my deal. All I need is 11,800 votes, right? And he says that over and over again. The enterprise, and the purpose of the enterprise was to keep Donald Trump in office without a doubt.
0: She's going to look into, apparently, also the abrupt resignation of the U.S. Attorney for Northern Georgia. How does that fit within her purview?
2: It seems to me that, certainly if I were, and I'm not prosecuting the case, I'm just an academic, But if I were prosecuting the case, I would lay out what seems to be a pretty clear narrative. Um, And it's a a plan that apparently Rudy Giuliani developed for Trump uh, for how to uh, get past the fact that Trump lost the popular vote. Um, And so plan one, right, um, was to sort of directly try to change the vote this, these kinds of political pressure. Plan two was to prevent, in in the swing states, the votes from being certified by the safe harbor date in early December, so that an argument could be made that the because the votes were not certified by that date, it then reverted to the state legislature to step in and appoint the slate of electors, and of course, he targeted states with Republican-dominated legislatures, so. The the plan was, up to that point, was to try to block the certification by lawsuits, by political pressure, whatever. That failed, okay? Then the the next step in the plan was to prevent the votes from being certified in Congress so that Biden failed to receive a majority of of the electoral votes in Congress because under the Constitution, if nobody gets a majority of electoral votes, the decision goes to the House of Representatives voting by state delegations, which would mean that the Republicans would choose the next president, and that would be Trump. So that was the plan. And each of these acts fits perfectly as steps toward achieving those goals.
0: This has gotten a lot more attention, but the Secretary of State is also investigating. Do you expect that to go anywhere?
2: I think it probably will, at a minimum, take a back seat. The Fulton County District Attorney doesn't have to wait for that process. As I understand it, there is a process where the State Election Board can investigate violations of the Election Code, and if they decide there is a violation, that they can request either a local district attorney or the Attorney General to to pursue it. But uh, District Attorney wolf doesn't feel that she needs to wait for that process, and I think she's right. These are crimes that they were committed in her jurisdiction. She can proceed, and, and I think that I think I think that's what's going to happen.
0: In her letter, she also mentions that the next grand jury will be convening in March, and they'll begin requesting grand jury subpoenas if necessary at that time. What kind of information might she be looking for that's not already in the public record?
2: We don't know what we don't know, do we? So part of the frustration about the recently completed second impeachment trial is there were no witnesses, there was no discovery of evidence, everything was based on a public record, which was pretty much true of the first impeachment. And you don't know what kind of evidence of conspiracy you're going to find, particularly if she serves subpoenas on Giuliani and there is a crime fraud exception to attorney-client privilege. that She might succeed on that and force Giuliani to turn over all the information about his work on behalf of President Trump in Georgia. That would be a treasure trove of information.
0: Thanks, Clark. That's Clark Cunningham, a professor at the Georgia State University. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast law. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.